to say. I'm out here doing everything you suck as cake. To a million from some bands trying to bust the bank. Hi, and welcome to Breaks and Dishes podcast. I am one of your hosts, Verda, and my other half is John. We come from two sides of the coin. I'm on the West Coast, and John is on the East. Also, I've been working in workplace design for almost 30 years, and John's been working with manufacturers and others in the industry for about that same amount of time. We came together for this podcast because we felt designers could do more to address the climate crisis. And we wanted to see how we could inspire others and ourselves. So we found that looking within was great, but especially looking to those outside our industry, doing amazing things to make change happen is especially enlightening. These are people asking questions few have asked. In most cases, simple questions like, can I make packaging less of an environmental impact or take fishing nets off the ocean floor and make them into something useful? Okay, maybe not so simple, but it's the kinds of questions we all need to be asking. I was reading Greta Thunberg's Instagram feed this morning. She was at yet another climate summit, and she said, blah, 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 just more targets and no action. The action needed is not possible within today's systems. What we really need is a whole new way of thinking. John, why don't you introduce our guest so we can talk about someone who is thinking in a whole new way. Thank you, Verda. I'm the lucky one today that gets to introduce our guest. Verda and I always fight over this, and uh, today I won. So we're already into the new year, and I've got one victory under my belt. So a few weeks ago, we spoke to a gentleman by the name of Scott Fulbright. Scott, to oversimplify, uh, has introduced a technology to the world that makes uh, ink out of algae. And actually, we'll be dropping that episode very shortly, so I'm not going to say anything more about that. That conversation, however, did get me thinking more about algae. And Verda, I never actually thought I would say that. But I would ask you, have you been thinking more about algae lately, Verda? I have now. <laughs> that would never crossed my mind before. <laughs> yes, that um, that meddlesome blooming material that we find uh, on so many of our waterways. But so before I, I introduce our guest, let me throw some facts out there. Our planet is over 71% water. Algae produces more oxygen and captures more carbon than all the forests in the world combined. Data also points out that algae buried on the ocean floor and subjected to heat and pressure is a huge part of that biomass that is eventually converted to oil. So why are we not really looking at algae? Um, well, people are actually looking at algae. Uh, rising global temperatures, uh, excess nutrient runoff, human activities have all led to harmful effects like these massive algae blooms we hear about. Water pollution is an invisible problem made visible by rampant algae growth. So enter today's guest, Ryan Hunt. Ryan is co-founder of Algix, a parent company of Bloom. Bloom makes foam from algae. I just really oversimplified that. But you know what? We have Ryan here with us, and he is going to take us into the weeds, or, or is that algae? Um, in the first six months of 2020, Bloom's Clean Water Plus Clean Air Initiative cleaned over 150 million 
liters of water and returned it to the environment and cleaned 96 million cubic meters of air of CO2 and sequestered 70,000 kilograms of CO2 carbon, uh, which is really amazing. So Ryan, uh, congratulations on that. Uh, super excited to have you. Welcome to to Break Some Dishes. Thank you so much, John and Barrett. It's great to be here and really excited to to dig into the uh, yeah the aquatic weeds with you guys on the benefits and future potential of this amazing class of aquatic organisms. Whoever thought we would try so hard, Verda, to make algae sexy, but we're going to try to do it today. Or that we'd learn so much about algae. <laughs> that, was a well, great, that was a great overview, by the way, John. That was really good. Thank you. I appreciate it. I hope, uh, like I said, I hope I didn't oversimplify anything. It's, it really is amazing what you're doing. I, and I think that you know one of the most fascinating things about the conversations that Verda and I have been having lately has been the remarkable use of materials, right? We had, you know, my nephew on talking about uh, green ammonia. We had Scott on talking about, you know, algae and ink. We've had people on talking about material toxicity. And uh, I think one of the things that Verda and I are really trying to get designers to look at is material. And I think there's a couple ways of looking at material. One, one way is, you know, can we identify where the toxic ingredients lie and can we stay away from that stuff? But you've taken it to a whole new level in the sense that now you're taking something that it could be a pest, right? Algae. All of us have come into contact with algae and I don't think we've ever had a favorable experience with it, right? So you're, you're taking this, this, this material that we see it on all of our lakes and ponds and oceans too, right? Yes, red, red tide is a type of algae. Yeah. Ryan, tell us when you first even became aware of algae. <laughs> yeah, well, so I had a lot of aquariums in college. Uh, I had five of them in my college dorm. It was, it was a little crazy. And uh, because of the amount of food you have to you know, feed your, your pets, uh, I was constantly battling these plagues of algae blooms in the aquariums, and it got to the point where I would clean, you know, spend, you know, my Friday night instead of going out and partying, I was cleaning fish tanks. And by Sunday, the tank looked exactly like it did Friday morning. You know, it, the the doubling rate of algae it can double its biomass in, in a day. So when there's an abundance of nutrients and there's light, uh, the the Algae represents really the most efficient conversion of sunlight into biomass on the planet, and it's the predecessor of all plants and trees. So it, it was—it's the original OG photosynthesizer. But we try to avoid it, right? We try to avoid it. Yeah, it's gotten a really bad name. If you search on the internet, you know, algae blooms it is typically pretty bad stuff about fish kills, drinking water problems. Uh, real estate values being impacted, toxins that can be produced from some specific species under certain conditions, uh, manatee deaths, dolphin deaths, sea turtle deaths. I mean, it, 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 the, the, the gamut runs wide on the negative consequences that the algae blooms can have when they're just in these, in these really what are called eutrophic areas. These are areas that have lots of nutrients with elevated CO2 levels in our atmosphere and a warming climate more and more geographies are experiencing the damaging effects of algae blooms. And algae, it's a natural thing, but in unnatural environmental conditions, 
caused by, you know, agricultural runoff and sewage runoff and, you know, a variety of, of different uh, sources of nutrients is fueling the, some of the largest algae blooms that humans have ever seen. I like how you're trying to find something positive out of this terrible scourge. Yeah. <laughs> Your aha moment. Like, when did you realize you could do something with this algae? Well, the aha moment for me was that, I, you know, I'm not the first one to, to come up with this idea. The Department of Energy has been researching microalgae-based biofuels since the 1970s. They spent over 25 years and millions and millions of dollars finding, uh, tr- trying to develop biofuels from algae and growing algae on power plants and wastewater. So it's not necessarily a, a new concept. Uh, really, the angle that we took that was, I think, unique was that while, and, th- and this was when we, you know, I was doing the, the original research at the University of Georgia, we were funded by the Department of Energy uh, after the kind of in the resurgence of the algae biofuels in the late 2000s. And what the, at that point, everyone was was very focused on biofuels. That's where the DOE was putting money at. That's what the companies were were promoting, and that's what was being developed. Unfortunately, what our research showed is that you know, our strategy was to use the algae as a tool for environmental remediation. So we wanted to specifically grow the algae on wastewater and recover those nutrients, you know, suck CO2 out of the air, you know, into the water, into the biomass, capture it. And when you, when you find the fastest growing algae species and the fastest growing cultivation conditions, what that means is that you actually have very low oil content in the algae itself. Uh, the faster the algae grows, the lower the oil content. So this whole, co- this whole idea that the Department of Energy was, was promoting was that we were going to use all of our waste to grow all this algae and turn it all into biofuels it was fundamentally flawed. And that fundamental flaw was, well, what do you get when you add a bunch of nutrients to algae? You don't get oil, you get protein. And so our our, our division, our, our group was called the biorefinery group. And so we were refining biomass and using different approaches, different technologies to convert that biomass into crude oil, into natural gas, into fertilizers and charcoal, as well as ultimately these materials. And so our unique perspective was let's use the algae in a thermoplastic composite where we're displacing directly a refined petroleum product, namely you know, polymers, plastics, and replacing it at some percentage with the natural thermoplastic properties of, of protein that's, that's contained within the algae cells themselves. And so that allowed us to generate, you know, pound per pound, a lot more value than fuels. Fuels are very cheap on a per pound basis. We think about it in gallons. Well, it's almost eight pounds per gallon. That's just a couple bucks. So whereas, you know, plastics can range from one to maybe three or four dollars per pound. So it was, you know, multiple times more valuable on a weight basis. And we didn't have any losses when you try to produce biofuels you know, you're maybe getting a 20 or 30% yield in, in a good case. Uh, whereas we were converting 100% of the biomass into this replacement for, for plastics and in, in the composites. So we were able to achieve uh, higher conversion efficiencies and a higher value m- market. And, and then 
and I guess the and the big advantage was that now that we had the algae contained, we weren't burning it and releasing that nitrogen and phosphorus and CO two that carbon back into the environment. We, we instead were we're sequestering it into these durable products or, or biodegradable products. And we find that when you add algae to a biodegradable or also known as a compostable polymer, the algae accelerates the biodegradation rate of the final compound. Uh, but if you blend algae with a durable polymer, an engineered polymer, you can sequester that nutrient and that carbon in that product over a longer period of time. So depending on what the market wanted, we were very flexible in our technology platform to be, be able to address the needs of, uh, of you know, everything from what eventually became footwear brands mostly. But, you know, we, that's not where we started. We were making flower pots and vine clips and mulch films and, and aquacultural products and, uh, and largely unsuccessfully, I might add. It wasn't, it hasn't been easy. Uh, we had a lot of projects that never commercially went anywhere. We were either too expensive. We couldn't scale quick enough. There was maybe performance related issues. So we really didn't find our niche until we started exploring and working with footwear brands to incorporate the algae as a sustainable ingredient in flexible foams that are being used in insoles, midsoles, outsoles, sandals, yoga mats, uh, a variety of, of sports and, and, and consumer products. So that's really been uh, where I believe we've been able to make the breakthrough compared to the dozens of companies that you know went bankrupt over the past decade or two trying to convert algae into fuels. Isn't it amazing how... We just keep trying to push a bad idea be- just because it's it's all we know. Yeah, the fuel companies and oil companies, and they just won't pivot. And there's so much opportunity as you've shown, but you have to be willing to think differently, think in different ways, and fail. It sounds like you've had a number of failures before you had success, but you realized that that there was opportunity elsewhere, and you you went for it. How how organic was that process for you, Ryan? In in terms of, um, you know, you're making flower pots, you're making um, the mulch. What is it called again? Because mulch, mulch mulch film, which is a big deal. By the way, Verda, we're only we were about twelve minutes into this podcast when we were already talking about plastic, right? <laughs> I and always, I think always everything comes back to plastic. It, it seems <laughs> like everything comes down to plastic. It's like the bastard of the environment, right? So, how organic was that process? Like, when did you know you when did you give up on on obviously biofuels? You gave up on that for the reasons that you just explained to us. But how long did that process take? Where you finally said, "Holy cow!" Whoever thought it was going to be the uh, the shoe industry that actually yeah. was the early adapter here? Well, you didn't see that coming, did you? Yeah, no, definitely not. I, you know, I I saw the light on the biofuel issues while while I was still in graduate school. I mean, I remember I remember the day. I specifically remember the day. It was about two thousand and nine, and you know, we were celebrating because we had just published one of the first article, scientifically peer reviewed articles in uh, bioresource technology about. Uh, converting wastewater into biofuels. We were one of the first groups in the world to do it and publish it. And, you know, we, uh, I mean, we spent almost a year in development and do and, and scaling up our processes. Uh, we harvested almost I think, 70 or 80 kilograms of algae that we grew in our laboratory, which 
doesn't sound like a lot of material, but in a lab environment, that was a lot of algae, a lot of work, a lot of money went into this. And, uh, and a lot of people were involved in this work. There was almost 20 of us working on all these different elements of this research. And then at the end of the day, we produced 30 milliliters of biofuel, of, bio, of crude biodiesel. It wouldn't, never would have passed specification. You never would have been able to put it in somebody's fuel tank. And you knew at that time that you were never going to be able to scale up. Yeah, well, I was sitting in the room checking out this small little vial of fuel that we everybody was so excited about. And in the meantime, I had the big tote of all of the ex- post-extracted biomass sitting in the corner of the room, this huge tote of all this algae that was the leftovers. It was like 95% of the product didn't make it into fuels. So I was just like, okay, well, this is great. We, we produced a biofuel, but what are we going to do with all this leftovers that's where it's at so we started feeding it to chickens we worked with the poultry science group <laughs> we did a trial for chickens and, uh, and that, was going, that was going okay and a lot of people are looking into this and there's still maybe value here but i remember i had a dream it was more of a nightmare where the new york times was running an article on my our research and it basically the the, the headline said mcdonald's feeding chickens industrial biosolids <laughs> and I was like, man, you know, so basically the re- the outcome was no one's going to find that attractive. No one's going to want their kids eating chicken nuggets that were grown on industrial biosolids, right? Doesn't sound right to me. <laughs> Does no. not sound right. So um, now if you grow the algae cleanly, people are, are producing spirulina under, you know, food grade conditions and they fed it to, to, to chickens. And there's been actually a lot of research on that. It, it can be quite healthy. You're not going to supplement all the feed, but there are benefits of eating algae if it's grown carefully. But again, our research was not about growing pharmaceutical-grade algae. It was cleaning up the planet. We had a huge problem on our hands. We were trying to use algae as a way to clean it up. So those two production scenarios aren't really the same. And you're talking um, about sequestering carbon? because. Yeah. Okay, because I've I've been reading that we can't solve our crisis without sequest- really picking up the slack on sequestering carbon. It's all about drawdown. It's right now the the big term, big jargon being thrown around. It's about drawdown. How are we going to suck? It's not just about reducing emissions. That's that's not going to cut it. We're we're far beyond that. We've got to think about implementing technologies that literally are it's sucking CO two out of the air faster than we are emitting it. And that's, and that's the challenge that we're at right now. And it's not an easy one. And if, but if we're going to find something to do it, the significantly higher photosynthetic capacity of algae is going to be one of our best bets of naturally absorbing the algae via photosynthesis and storing it in durable products or, in, or using it in some other way. Yeah, and I think that we, we had somebody on, uh, one of our guests talking about flooring that sequesters carbon too. So, you know, uh, it's definitely something that people are, are looking at. And I think what is, I was talking to Verda a little bit before we began to record this episode and we were talking about the fact that the shoe industry, I mean, I believe you've got about 80 brand partners right now working with Bloom, which is an amazing adaption rate, I think. I mean, that's a lot. But when you think about the facts, see, one of the things that having a, a 19-year-old daughter, I think often about the fast fashion industry and what it's doing to the planet, right? I mean, the fact that you have stores, I, I'm not going to name any stores, but you have these fashion stores that sell 
t-shirts and things for super cheap. So you can buy, you know, a new wardrobe every season. If you really want to stay current, we, we actually create, I believe that stat is 90 to over 92 million tons. And it's, it's, it's going up over 92 million tons of fashion items that we send to the landfills and incinerators and dump in the oceans every year. And I think that now bloom uh, has an impact on that is is pretty cool and yeah have, just the footwear industry uh, the latest stats i saw was the footwear inter- footwear industry is responsible for about 700 million metric tons of co2 released into the atmosphere every year so it's it's a it's a huge number so and it's and it's not going to just be algae to fix this we need a multitude of innovations related to efficiency, recycling materials, taking the end of life of products and capturing it more efficiently and bringing it back in to the beginning of life. It's about using yeah. renewable energy. It's about using you know better water treatment processes. It's about buy, making less, buying less, using less. I mean, it's, it's a yeah. fundamental shift in our entire economy, which is not going to be easy. Well, that's the, that's the challenge, I think, is that the knee-jerk reaction at the layman's level is, oh my God, we have to stop burning so much fossil fuel, which is why this algae industry was fixated on biomass fuel, right? For so long, for too long. But I mean, think about the impact that what you just said about the shoe industry, uh, the impact that the shoe industry has on uh, carbon in the atmosphere just tells us that there's so many areas for us to look to, to begin sequestering or to begin drawing down on carbon, right? You probably never envisioned that you would have an impact through that particular channel, but, but you are. Well, you know, it's kind of an interesting aside, but it's related because when I was in still in school, around the time that I had that epiphany where we were still like in the biofuel centric mindset, this is like 2008. And I remember seeing, uh, and I was following very actively this little startup company. I was really excited about it. I, I, I signed up for the newsletter. I was following them. They promised this high-performance little sports car that would outperform you know, a Porsche 911. And it was this little company called Tesla. And, and I remember back then saying, if they're successful with this little roadster, this could totally change the automotive industry to where we're not going to be trying to grow algae to burn it into CO2. It's too wasteful. We need those, we need those carbon atoms, those carbon molecules. We need them for, for chemicals. We need them for, we need them for materials. We need them for food. We need them for feed. There's so many more important things we need to be, we need to be doing with this organic chemistry that algae is producing rather than just burning it in, a, in an internal combustion engine. And I had I had, I never would have imagined that. Tesla would have grown to, to now what to Elon's the most wealthiest man in the world. I mean, who would have? I mean, yeah. back then it was it was a, a laughing stock. It was under heavy criticism all the time, and nobody thought it would be successful. So um, that just shows how quickly, in, in you know, thirteen years, it completely changed through the perseverance of just one company and uh, and the innovative thinking that they've applied. So you know, that really guided me. Where when I saw that, I said, you know. Battery technology is only going to be improving CO2 emissions from vehicles. It's going to be eventually reduced and reduced and replaced through electrification. Uh, we need to be thinking about the other aspects of what oil is, is in our lives. It's not just gasoline. 
Uh, it's plastics. It's specialty chemicals. You know, there's there's so much other there's so many other elements of it that uh, makes it critical. And, and we said earlier about demonizing plastics. I mean, yes, plastics have a lot of unintended negative consequences, but they're amazing. I mean, uh, wasn't yeah. that long ago that the plastics were the savior, right? Like it was yeah. for food safety and for performance and light weighting. And in some ways, they dramatically increased the efficiency of cars. The plastics had because of weight. Cars used to be made out of like heavy steel. Uh, now they're made out of composites and polymer. So yes, it is bad, but it's, and I don't want to call it a necessary evil, but it's, it's you know, they've been developed because of a specific need in industry. And so we've got to be careful that we can't just say, I've seen a lot about, you know, going plastic free and, you know, eliminating all plastics. And I think a bit of it's wishful thinking. I, I don't think people, I don't think society can serve, can, I don't think it's possible. I don't think it's, we can't rewind the clock that much. Um, we need to be more creative in how we deal with the end of life of plastics, how we deal with the toxicity of plastics, how we deal with the production of plastics. But I do not see from a medical perspective, from a from a vehicle perspective, from just an everyday electronics consumer perspective, polymers are every single place we touch and feel. And you can't just get rid of them and go back to wool and wood. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How about end of life of shoes? I'm super impressed with your the brands, your partners. You've got Puma and Adidas and Merrill, but you're just making one part of that shoe. I have bad feet, so I have to replace my 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 feet. Tell me when my tennis shoes have have ended their life, at least the sole part, right? In a few, six months or something, I have to replace my tennis shoes, and it's. I always think about it because the tops, other parts of the shoe are just fine. But yeah. it's that sole that's worn out. And I think, gosh, if we could just, I, there's a new trend, a new movement in our industry in design and architecture called design for disassembly, where this idea that you can design something that can make something that can be taken apart and then remade into another another building or another space. And it's a pretty interesting theory and movement. And I think we need to start looking at that in terms of our fashion too. I, I keep hearing these, the 1%, these rich people who are buying all that hot couture saying, I'm going to buy less fashion, but what, what impact is that really going to make? And even with the fast fashion, we've got to figure out ways to, to reclaim this stuff at the end of the Yeah. Well, that's, that's what we're really trying to challenge the interior design industry, right, Verda? I mean, we think about the fact that in the commercial side of things, office spaces turn over every 10 years, right? And that means you put all new stuff in there and you throw away all the old stuff, right? And it's, I mean, it almost seems like it's a template for disaster, whether you apply it to the fashion industry or you apply it to the interiors industry, we're not repurposing. There's not enough closed loop product being used, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's all in the design. The sustainability starts with the design of the product. And uh, yeah, designing for the end of life is a, a huge part of where I think brands are going. Our, we're already talk, starting to have these discussions with footwear brands. I mean, if you think about it, kind of going back to the past where we used to have milkmen deliver glass bottles of milk, right? Yeah. You know, we used to have cobblers that resold our shoes. It isn't the uppers of the shoes that are failing, it's the soles and they're compressing out. And so that's one element of algae where you mentioned earlier, you know, 
we, we're using algae as a sustainable ingredient in the existing supply chain. That allows us to work with the big cost-conscious customers, but it also creates opportunities for us to work with innovation teams and redesign these products with that end of life in mind and being able to have the shoe be deconstructed easily. One of our brands just announced this week a, a glueless sneaker, a shoe that doesn't use glue. It, it uses a, a me- mechanical attachment mechanism between the sole and the, and the upper that can be disassembled much more easily than, than gluing it. And so those are all critical elements because you, you asked a second ago about uh, recycling footwear. It's one of the biggest challenges because anytime you have a multi-material product, the recycling of that product becomes incredibly complicated. And that goes from multi-layer films that are used in food packaging. That's a big problem. All the way up to you know footwear cars or refrigerators. You know, um, So there is businesses now, new industries forming that are uh, essentially recycle uh, advanced recyclers. So the the old school, more traditional. When you think of recycling, it's like okay, we're going to go sort out all the plastic water bottles, all the plastic soda bottles, the milk jugs. Those are all made out of PET or HDPE. Like they're a one or they're a two on the little recycling symbol, and they're easily easily identified. They're easily sorted, and they can be ground up and per, and, per, and converted back into a relatively pure polymer without much contamination. You wash the bottle, you separate it, you know, and I've been to some of these facilities here in the U.S. that do that. It's amazing. But that's still a relatively traditional technology. Now what we're looking at is advanced recycling where either from the multi-material perspective, it's taking a shoe, grinding it up, but not all the way, using magnetic separation, using density separation, separating the fibers from the rubber, from the foams, from the, from the laces or whatever. And ultimately coming up with a variety of products leaving this re- this recycling and sorting factory or facility. Likewise, you also see a, a movement in using and making products out of monomaterials. So instead of adapting uh, yeah. the end of life and the end of life processing facilities, instead focus on designing the product with only one type of material such that when you grind it up, you don't have to sort it because sorting is not a, not super efficient and it's not perfect. So if you just grind it all up and it's all the same thing, it's just made in different shapes. Now, it doesn't matter if you sort it perfectly or not. You can still get a high purity polymer out of the end product. And so, and, and then the other element that we're seeing more of, and we're, we're, we have some collaborations with some of these companies, is chemical recycling. So one of the exciting ones is a company out of California that's actually taking the low end, some of the, some of the most hated and lowest value plastics out there, maybe next to straws, which is the plastic bags that you get from the grocery store. You know, they're pretty much useless. Yeah. And it's LDPE, it's low density polyethylene, and they have a process that chemically converts it and can actually upgrade it into high performance advanced polymers uh, using some unique catalyst technology. So there you've got a low-value, ubiquitous pollutant that's causing all sorts of problems going back into a process and coming out as a higher-performing, higher-valuable product that can be used in a wider range of, of materials. You're not just making more plastic bags. You're not just putting it into to, as a filler into a tire or into like a playground. You're actually converting it into a high-performance product. So when, when we look yeah. at algae and trying to get it into shoes, we're starting at this at the easy level, at the lower level. Hey, let's get our foot in the door. Let's get the brands thinking about you know sustainable content. And it's not just about the percentage; it's about the impact. You can't just look at the percentage of 
uh, of bio-based materials in a product per se, because that could be misrepresentative of what the actual final impact is. So we really like to focus on light using what's called life cycle assessment or, or essentially a cradle right. cradle approach to measuring and quantifying those benefits on a very scientific way. Well, I like the way we're we're talking about recycling right now because I I it's amazing how many people don't realize how little we recycle. And we almost use that recycling as an excuse for overconsumption. Well, no, I can I can have all this stuff because I'll just recycle it. I'll put it in the re- and we don't realize that most of what we put in the recycle bin never ever gets recycled. So it's fascinating listening to you talk about the problems that are being worked on right now in the recycling system because it's so far from perfect. It's exciting to hear that plastic, there's some research happening where plastic can be upcycled versus only downcycled. Yeah. Yeah. As Ryan's talking, you know, I'm trying to put it through an interiors lens too. And I'm thinking, gosh, you know, are there products, Verda, that, that you specify in a commercial interior that, you know, Ryan's product could or should be a part of, right? So the polymer, Ryan, you're, I want you to give us a bit of a, a lesson here, but I, are you basically combining your algae material, this biomass, with a polymer to create a friendlier, more bio, because you said the algae works to help it break down. Only, so explain. Yeah, let me yeah, explain that a little bit more. So yeah, we are not extracting anything out of the algae. We are not fermenting it. We are not con- chemically converting it. Uh, we are using heat and, and, and shear forces to reshape the algae at the you know, biomolecular level, essentially at that protein level. And we are, we are uh, aligning those, poly- those protein polymers with base pol- with, with traditional polymers. So if we blend algae with a biodegradable or compostable polymer like PLA, or PBS, or a variety of others, PHA, uh, then the algae infuses nutrients into that matrix. And when that that biodegradable plastic enters the composting environment, uh, it will compost faster and more completely. Um, However, on the other end, we have, like in the footwear side, we're not you know, the footwear industry doesn't use PLA. It doesn't perform. It doesn't have the right performance characteristics. We, we work with uh, the polymers that are already being used in the, in, in the industry we're targeting, uh, which is a little bit controversial. I mean, we're, we're adding algae into a product that's you know, where the algae is not making the, the product biodegradable. Uh, but rather what we're doing is we're adding algae into a foam, a thermoplastic foam that really doesn't have an end of life, a good end of life. You can't recycle it even without algae in it. Just the foam itself is cross-linked, meaning that it doesn't, it loses its ability to be recycled. So uh, what we, what we're really trying to do is sequester or capture that carbon, the nitrogen, the phosphorus, and store it in a durable good that has a long lifetime. And, uh, and, and, and the next level is, okay, at the end of this, you know, let's say this shoe has a lifetime of a couple of years, maybe it's, three years, maybe it's five years, maybe it's only a year. How do we recollect that shoe and get it back into a form that can be used to make more shoes and try to keep it at least a recycle, which would be like on par 
Um, if you could upcycle it into something more valuable, that's maybe possible through either chemical means or maybe even certain types of mechanical means. But otherwise, it may be downcycled into something lower value like flip-flops. You might turn a, a running shoe into a pair of flip-flops or something like that. So those are kind of the the areas of uh, of how you would transition the algae from a, a biomass into a, a, a compound ultimately. I'm yeah, I'm really excited about this these solutions that you're proposing. I I have so much so many clothes that I I toss out that are perfectly good, but they're the late the last year's fashion or whatever. I my I feel like this my son's a teenager and they might have a little bit of a solution in that he gets online and he shops for used used sneakers that maybe I don't know, Kanye West touched, uh, maybe he wore, maybe he didn't, you know, and there are thousands, they're selling for thousands of dollars and they've found ways to add value to something that's ordinary and they're going to keep longer because of it. Yeah. Yeah. That is a, a bit of a, and I think that uh, when we look at the design industry, I think they need to do a lot of the same thing. I know that, um, you know, we, we talk about if you design something very, very well, it should be coveted and never wind up in a landfill. It's when you start getting crap that, that begins to look dated or it wears out that it winds up in a landfill. But it sounds like Ryan, it sounds like bloom is going to, and I'm actually asking you, is bloom going to stay in this shoe industry, it sounds like you're really you're doing some things in that industry to make improvements, whether it is understanding the recycling, understanding the end of life cycle, um, obviously improving what goes into that product. And then to take a step back, is Algix more of a company that's got a broader perspective on application for this technology? That's a great question. So, uh, I would say on the on the Bloom side, you know, Bloom is this are these class is these, these classes of different polymers. These are these are the compounds. So these are the pellets. Okay. The pellets uh, are blends of algae and different polymers. So we can deliver our Bloom compounds to a wide range of markets, but they have to meet a certain set of criteria. We like working with consumer brands because the pull for sustainable materials is there. Um, so that's, I think the main reason why we've been so focused on footwear, but, uh, we are already working with other consumer product brands in the sports space, yoga mats, uh, water sports, traction pads, a lot of bags and accessory products. They use EVA. So really our goal is to establish a supply chain and really when I say establish a supply chain. Really what I mean is set up our material and integrate it into the existing supply chain that these brands are already using to make their products. You know, one thing okay. that maybe probably probably people realize but maybe never thought of, I didn't quite realize it to the extent that it existed, that the reality is, which is that, you know, brands really don't make anything. Uh, when a brand releases a new shoe or a new product, whether it's the biggest brands, biggest names in the world or, or the new ones, they're contracting with existing footwear manufacturing factories that are pretty much owned uh, by the Taiwanese or the Chinese, and they're located in China, Vietnam, Taiwan, 
um, in a few other countries in the Southeast Asia area. There's not in a little bit in Europe and a tiny, tiny bit in the U.S., uh, but majority of this is, is happening under contract. And so they're, you know, these brands are stuck. They don't really have a, an easy ability to, uh, to innovate in their own supply chain. They're kind of, they got what they got. And so what we've been doing is, is saying, hey, if we plug this material into hundreds of factories in the existing supply chain, it's going to increase the odds of getting this product into more and more uh, brand's hands. And so that's been really what we've been doing. But as a result, it's also introduced us into the supply chain of bags and accessories and sports products and some of these other things. So we are expanding oh, yeah. beyond just footwear. Yeah. Um, but like even on the you know interior and construction sides, I had a call recently about you know sound absorbing materials, uh, vibration isolation materials, uh, you know right. foams being used in the built environment that can help address functional needs while still you know also having this element of sustainability, uh, maybe addressing some of the demands or needs or interests of like LEED certified building codes. So uh, this is all harnessing biology, right? This is what we we call it, which is really challenging because it takes a long time to do this. I'm just curious um, because I, in in the course of doing some research on you and on Allergix, uh, I read a lot about you know this lab grown movement where there's lab grown leather and lab grown silk, and it's a real slippery slope. Right, because you know, why do you need to have lab-grown leather when we're already eating beef? And what are you going to do then? Throw the hide into a landfill? So I'm curious what your thoughts are on this whole movement towards um, heart, you know, towards harnessing biology. And is this what, because there's we still have to have farmers and we still have to have ranchers. I mean, there's still a, there's a value. To some of yeah, them, I right? think the wa- you know waste recovery is huge. Uh, a, a lot of the new technologies start off in the laboratory, so it makes sense that a lot of these new technology companies are essentially being marketed or or talked about in terms of lab grown this or lab grown that because that's just where you start at. And we were lab grown algae in the beginning days as well. Not that that was the ultimate goal, but that was just how we had to do it because there was no supply chain. So when you look at uh, producing, let, let's call it more biotech, using biotech to produce these materials. Think of um, some of the, you know, artificial meats or the, um, you know, the different types of specialty chemicals and compounds and, and, and polymers even being produced. This is where a life cycle assessment is really important because just because a organism like a like a bacteria or even an algae cell could convert sugar into a specific polymer doesn't mean that it's always the best thing to do. It really depends on, well, what's that bacteria or algae growing on? Is it growing on sunlight or is it growing on sugar? And if it is growing on sugar, well, where did the sugar come from? Is that a waste sugar or are they growing you know, a, a crop to, pr- to produce that sugar? Yeah. And if they are growing a crop to produce the sugar, what are the, what are the ramifications and, and consequences Are they cutting down rainforests to grow that crop? I mean, it's such a, there's a rabbit hole around every, you know, you get sucked into a rabbit hole in every conversation. Exactly. So I think that from the biotech perspective, looking at the feedstock quality and impact is a huge deal. That's going to be critical to to evaluate whether or not a, a technology is scalable. 
there are companies that have scaled up stuff. Now, the, the ones that I like, the ones that I'm really interested in, do take these biotech principles, but they use waste inputs, particularly uh, biogas from, uh, from wastewater. So essentially taking the methane and the CO2 that's coming off of our wastewater and the digesters and the wastewater treatment facilities and actually feeding that to, to microbes. You can feed methane and hydrogen. You can, you can feed gases to, to bacteria and, uh, they'll, and they'll grow. And so if you can use a, you know, methane's 23 times more potent of a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. So if you can intercept methane prior to it being released, I mean, this is why uh, cattle, this is why leather has such a bad rap right now, is not only is the feed conversion ratio horrible, it takes a lot of corn to feed, make a pound of beef and a ton of water to grow all that corn. But at the end of the day, uh, when the cows are eating that corn, they're burping and releasing enormous quantities of methane, which is a very potent greenhouse gas. So if there's a way to intercept or produce that gas uh, and, and convert it into a polymer, uh, which is being done right now by several different startup companies, converting methane and CO2 and hydrogen into uh, biopolymers, uh, you know, that's a phenomenal technology and one that, you know, it, it takes scale. And, and so the big challenge, though, is this is, this, is, this is not, to be a startup and to do this, you've got to raise a lot of capital. And you've got to have a really compelling technology and you have to have a good commercialization strategy. Uh, trying to start up and compete with ExxonMobil is really hard. We struggled. I mean, we, we almost failed multiple times because at our company, we were trying to blend algae and compete with like polypropylene or polyethylene. It's just too cheap. And so it wasn't until we identified specific niche applications, and I'll call it, you know, niche and kind of hypotheses. It's like, you know, footwear is this massive industry, but in the grand scheme of things, it's still a relatively small industry with a relatively small number of players. And the end product is very valuable. So we found ourselves kind of a nice niche because we're able to get a premium for our product compared to commodity polyethylene in the near term. And in the long term, as our scale increases as more demand, as more brands demand our product, as our our sourcing of algae increases, we're going to be able to dramatically reduce the cost. And if you think about it, algae is a, is a byproduct. It's a nuisance. It's a problem. Um, you know, everybody always asks, are you getting paid to take the algae? And the short answer is no, not yet. We do get it relatively inexpensively, but there is still cost around harvesting it and drying it and, and processing it. So a lot of these come down with, with economies of scale. You know what's interesting here is that you're not just creating a product. You're not just saying, here's here's some algae to replace the foam and your yoga mats or your shoes. You are you're giving these companies a different way of thinking, a challenge. You're challenging them to think differently about their products, not just the part that you're providing to them. And I noticed on your website that you do have a challenge. A, an outright challenge that you've put up, put forth to these companies, the clean water challenge. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So all of our materials on a kilogram basis, we can calculate how much water that algae cleaned during its life cycle. And we attribute that water cleaning and that carbon capturing capacity to our products. So such that when a brand buys Bloom materials from us, uh, they get a certificate at the end of the year with their total uh, amount of material purchased 
and the total impact that they achieved. So we have we have challenged our brands to uh, really have a race to see who can clean the most water with their products. And, and obviously, some of our big brands like Adidas, I mean, they have a hand up because they do 400 million pairs of shoes per year. But it's interesting. We've got some small players that have gone all in and have been able to generate a, an amazing positive impact, even though you know they're not this one of the huge global big names that everybody is aware of. So we we provide the, the these awards that are cumulative. So as brands adopt us, and, we, and sometimes products get dropped, sometimes you know uh, businesses change, leadership changes. So you know we we look at this as a long as a as a as a, uh, as, a as a long game. Uh, but uh, we are. We're showcasing the brands that are adopting Bloom in big ways and cleaning water, and we're able to quantify that. And we uh, we give that data to the brands to where when, when their marketing teams go out and want to talk about the changes that they are making in their supply chains to achieve these new sustainability uh, demands from the marketplace, that they have something tangible to talk about. It's not It's not good enough just to say we're green or we're eco-friendly, yeah. or we're eco-conscious. Yeah. I mean, that made it work 10 years ago. Uh, now people don't believe it. You've got, you're going to get accused of greenwashing. You need certifications. You need legitimate LCA-backed data. And that's what we provide to the market. And I think that is one of the reasons why in just five years, you know, we have over 100 brands now that are, that are either in the market or about to be in the market with us this year. Yeah, and as you're talking, I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, you know, the next time I, I need to buy a pair of shoes, this is something I'm going to take into consideration, right? Why would I not want to buy a pair of shoes that, that Bloom is involved in? Because, you know, I, I it's it's kind of crazy, but, you know, you're giving people a reason to to purchase Adidas now, right? If if they're actually, they're, they're walking the walk, which is, which is pretty, which is pretty cool. Yeah, you're things it. from a number of angles. And I think bringing people along is great individuals doing the right thing, but corporations doing the right thing. And it's leading the way and showing when one corporation joins, another one sees that that one's doing the right thing. So they're like, we got to do the right thing. Yeah. And it's, it's moving the needle faster, I think, than, than just about anything else can. So we're coming up yeah. on the hour. Do we want to I wanted to make one quick comment to, to yeah, wrap up that point. And that is that you know, the sale of the bloom pellets of our material, the sale of that actually creates a market for the algae biomass that's being used to clean water. And that incentivizes industry to capture their own CO2 emissions and their own water pollution using new algae technologies. So our company, uh, we've set up the company in the, in the supply chain such that as the brands that are actually producing CO2 emissions, they're generating wastewater at their textile mills, uh, the, the emissions from the power plants that the factories are running on, uh, even this local communities and in, uh, municipalities in where their headquarters are. It doesn't have to be just in China or Vietnam. It can be in Portland, Oregon, for that matter. Um, but wherever these companies are, they have a footprint. And if they have a footprint, they've got wastewater utilities, they've got power oh, yeah. emissions, the, you know, it's, it's happening everywhere. So if, if all of a sudden we totally change the paradigm to say, by, by using Bloom, you're incentivizing the production. And as a factory or as a power company, they see that the CO2 they're releasing 
the nitrogen and the phosphorus that's being released, instead of viewing that as, you know, a liability or viewing it as, hey, you know, we're polluting, but we're polluting within the constraints of the EPA regulations. So we're not getting fined. Or even if you are getting fined, it's like now it makes it even an easier business case to say, well, if I view that nitrogen as lost profitability, if I see that phosphorus and say, hey, I could be growing algae on this instead of literally flushing it down the drain and letting the quote unquote society deal with it in other ways. If we're totally changing that equation, it's going to allow us to incentivize industry to clean up their own act, but not through just regulation, but but I think more effectively through through capitalism, through profiteering, through being able to say, hey, we can make money off of our waste. And businesses are going to want to make money. They're going to want to improve their bottom line. So, if it, so that's the big, I'd say, you know, game changer is, you know, these these industries thinking in this more circular nature. It's one thing to say and see sandals on a beach, bottles in the ocean. That is a macroscopic pollution that didn't make it into its proper post uh, uh, handling. It's 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 waste handling systems. But the invisible pollution that we're all contributing to, the CO2, the nitrogen, the phosphorus, every single one of us literally excrete that all every day. And it all accumulates in certain parts of society, wastewater plants and the atmosphere, et cetera. It's a huge reservoir. Let's go after those reservoirs and convert that pollution, that invisible waste into something of value. And if we have brands that are, are specking in 20%, 30% bloom into their products, there's going to be an increased demand for it. It's the same model, business model, the plastic industry, the recycled plastic industries make. Now, recycled PET bottles and, re- and recycled yarns are sometimes more valuable than virgin because of the demand of the brands to use recycled content. You know, Audi is a perfect example. They are saying large, uh, you know, setting lofty goals of all of their fibers and materials being recycled. So there is going to be increasing demand for these recycled and circular products. So algae is just adding an extended dimension to the invisible Mm -hmm. pollution. And so the brands that are adopting Bloom are directly supporting this shift in the industry's perception on what waste really is. And it's helping us support these lake restoration projects and these environmental protection projects that have real tangible impact. And that's how you move the needle. And who would have thought? Yeah. Breaks and vision. started with algae. <laughs> Good God. You know, Ryan, I think Ryan just summated our episode absolutely flawlessly. This is a perfect place for us to end. I knew this conversation was bigger than algae. It It, it is, oh, right? Is it? I, yes. I told yeah. So, Ryan, thank you. I'm so impressed yeah. with what you're doing and wish you the best of luck and success. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. I appreciate yeah. the opportunity. To Good through. luck. Good luck. And I look forward to watching you continue to innovate and change the way that we look at stuff, man, like algae. It's now I'm looking at algae in a whole new light. Thank but, you. <laughs> you know, your explanation of what, of, of what, um, use of algae is doing with the way industry now is looking at waste product is uh, is amazing. So good luck. Thanks for joining us today on Break Some Dishes. It was a it was a great great opportunity to listen to what you're doing. Yeah, hope we can stay in touch. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks, Ryan. Good luck, buddy. Thank you. Bye. Bye.